Hello, friends, and thank you for joining Christ Church Online. We are in week two of our Lenten teaching series, which we are calling Beautiful Attitudes. Joining us this week with a message entitled Blessed Are Those Who Mourn is Jason Burt, the president of The Silver Ring Thing. We also wanted to remind you that we have a Lenten daily devotional available for you exclusively on the Christchurch app, which is available on iOS and Android devices. Now, here is Jason with this week's message. Thank you for listening. Well, again, it's a pleasure to be here with you uh, this evening. It was just over a year ago, and uh, January of last year, they had the opportunity and the privilege to, to preach here. And, and I was pretty certain at that point in time that by admitting I was a New England native and loved the New England Patriots, I thought I would never be invited back. And so just the fact that I'm here is, uh, is, is I know, it takes a lot to make that happen. So uh, as Jared said, we're in this, uh, starting this series called The Beautiful Attitudes. Uh, and it's a look at some of these first verses in the book of Matthew as Jesus is sitting down with his disciples on a hillside. And he's beginning to talk to them about this kind of upside down way of living. This certain paradox, this certain new perspective to look at about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And, and each beatitude starts with that word blessed, blessed, which means literally to, like blissful, happy. It's, it literally means like a state of to, to be enlarged, okay? Now this is not talking about a happiness that is, that is situational, based on circumstances, that if things are going well, I'm happy. No, this is, a, this is much deeper than that. It transcends that to a, a deep joy of the soul that is very permanent, that's fixed more on the knowledge that, that God is in control, that he loves you, that he has a plan for you. So it's so much more than just this kind of temporary you know, happiness. And so last week, I wasn't here, but I listened to the podcast. Pastor Jared opened up and he talked about that, that first statement where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we realize that, that those who are inheriting eternal life are not those who are necessarily economically poor or lack material possessions. We're talking about the poor in spirit. It's those who, who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy before God, who recognize their own sinful depravity. We know that we can claim no righteousness of our own. Those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's only us who come to God and realize that the only thing I contribute to my salvation is my sin. It's that recognition that puts us in that humility. And that's what the beautiful attitude of humility is, to recognize that, that God is everything, that I am nothing, and that only in Christ do I become something. That is what we're talking about here today. Now this week, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to look at that second attitude, that, that beatitude, as Jesus is talking to his disciples. And, and as, we, as we talked last week, these are kind of progressive in nature. One builds upon the other. And so we're starting with this idea of being poor in spirit. And then Jesus goes to this next beatitude where he says, Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Now really, honestly, until studying this passage, I was totally confused by this. Maybe you would be too. Because at face value, this doesn't really make sense. I mean, how would you say happy are the sad? Or happy are those who mourn? Blissful, in agony. That doesn't make any kind of sense at all. Now, I think one of the problems we have oftentimes in interpreting scripture is our, is our limited English vocabulary. Take the word love, for instance. We say that we love our sports and we love our spouse. But if you look at the Greek, they have at least four different words for, for love. From that 
phileo love, which is that friendship love, to that eros, which is the erotic love, to that agape, which is that godly, fatherly love. So they have many different expressions for the word love, and we just say love. Well, in the same way, the, the Greek New Testament uses at least nine different words for grief and for mourning. So we kind of use just a couple. They have nine different words. And so one thing we learn is that grief and mourning is a big part of human life and experience. That's for certain. And the other thing is we realize that sometimes our English words sometimes are kind of woefully insufficient or inadequate. Now, any time that there is pain or death or discouragement or or loneliness or anything like that, I I think a, a natural response is to experience that grief and even sadness. You know, Jesus wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. It says that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem as he looked out over there in compassion for them. There's nothing wrong with this kind of mourning as part of our experience of what it means to be human and what it means to be in a fallen world where there's sin and there's brokenness and there's death. It's okay to to grieve injustice, brokenness, and loss. Now, at the same time, there is also a sinful type of mourning. There is the mourning that basically, there's a kind of sadness that that is attached to really not getting our way through unmet lust or or covetousness or greed or envy. Sometimes we we crave something that we don't have and it really, it torments our soul. Or we selfishly desire what God has forbidden and it causes us to lose sleep. But is that really what Jesus is talking about? It still doesn't make sense. So either happy are those who are sad and mourn or or happy are those who have unmet lust or greed. Could that be at all what Jesus is referring to? Or is it something so much more, so much deeper, which I believe it is? See, I think, as we said, Jesus is building upon this idea of what it means to be spiritually blessed, to be poor in spirit. And what I believe Jesus is saying here is that this type of mourning... This type of mourning is due to grief over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn their sin, for they shall be comforted. You see, being poor in spirit is kind of that intellectual understanding. I recognize that I'm broken before God. But to mourn that sin and to mourn the fact that I have sinned against him is now my emotional response to that. So I start understanding who God is and who I am, and then because of my brokenness, I mourn that. That is that emotional response. You see, Jesus used the word here, for the word mourn is this Greek word, it's pentheo. And pentheo is the strongest Greek word he could possibly use as he's saying, blessed are those who mourn. It's, it usually, it means to lament or to wail over. It's a word that's most often tied to those who are mourning the death of somebody. So when Jesus' disciples gathered together following the the crucifixion and they wailed over his death, that's the picture of it. It's a similar picture of the word that's used in the, in the Old Testament when Jacob heard the news, uh, when Jacob heard the news of his son Joseph, son Joseph was dead in Genesis 34, 37, it said, Jacob tore his clothes in grief. He dressed in rough burlap and mourned his son a long, long time. That is how we are supposed to grieve over our sin. We're to be grieved by it. It's not something trivial or to be taken lightly. Jesus is saying to us that happy are those who grieve their sin, for they shall be comforted. Now, it still doesn't quite make sense. It still doesn't make sense. Where does this comfort come from? Is this something that we just receive naturally out of being sad? Or is it something that is given, is something that is imparted to us? 
And I think the Apostle Paul brings great clarity to this whole teaching. It's where we're going to spend most of the time as building the context for this passage. In, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to this church. And he describes to us that there's two different types of sorrow. So 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Paul's going to outline this. He says there's two different kinds of sorrow, both a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. One that leads to salvation and one that leads to death. So hear the words of Paul here in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see, godly sorrow is what, what the Christian realizes that I have sinned against God. That the nature of my sin is against my holy creator. It should drive us to our knees. There's that deep desire for forgiveness. For a restored relationship with the one who created you. That godly sorrow is, is what, is what turn, causes us to turn from our sin and leads us to salvation. And it says it leaves no regret. You see, repentance, that idea to, to turn from, is necessary for our salvation. For us to turn from our old ways to our new. But repentance is also needed in our sanctification. That every single day, in the process of being made more into the image of Christ, we need to turn from our, our current behaviors and habits and addictions and hang-ups and towards a loving God. We need to put those and cast those behind us, cast them away. Our entire lives should be marked by turning from our old ways to our new nature. Now get this, because this is what we got to understand. You and I are comforted and we're happy when we mourn over our sin, not because the process in and of itself is comforting, but because when we mourn our sin, we are met by grace with the comforter. That's what it's all about. Happy are those who grieve their sin because when you confess your sin to God, he is faithful and just to forgive you. He is happy and excited to remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. The reason why godly sorrow produces repentance and salvation leaves no regret, it leads to life, is because in that moment of confession, when we, when we confess to God our brokenness, our sin, he is always faithful and just to meet us right there. Every time he meets us there, forgives us, wipes us clean, cleanses us from all our transgressions. That's the nature of godly sorrow. Now the opposite of that is worldly sorrow. Paul says there's two. Worldly sorrow has no eternal value. It leads just to death. It is selfish and self-centered. Worldly sorrow grieves the consequences of sin rather than the one that the sin was the infraction of who it was going against. Worldly sorrow, it, it, it doesn't realize that, that you have sinned against a loving and, and all-knowing God and it ultimately produces then death. Charles Spurgeon contrasted these two and I thought his summary was really good. And, and just he says this, he says, Worldly sorrow first recognizes the enormity of the offense against God. We're a, I'm sorry, godly sorrow recognizes the enormity of the offense done to God. It understands that no payment is sufficient but seeks to repair what has been broken and heal the harms that have done. Godly sorrow arises out of an inner, entire change of mind. Godly sorrow joyfully accepts salvation by grace. And godly sorrow leads to future obedience and perpetual perseverance. The sinner now flees from sin. That's the mark of godly sorrow. As opposed to that, world sor worldly sorrow is the exact opposite. It's self-centered. It's despairing at the, at the consequences of sin rather than the harm that is done. 
Worldly sorrow just seeks forgiveness from, but not healing for, those who have been harmed. Worldly sorrow, it arises just from the shame of being found out. Worldly sorrow seeks self-justification. It points to the sin of others. Adam in the Garden of Eden said to God, Hey, the woman you put me here, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. That's worldly sorrow, blaming, justifying. Worldly sorrow is it leads to return to the same folly. Like the Proverbs say, when it says that as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Worldly sorrow does not concern itself with fleeing from temptation. There are two kinds of sorrow. So blessed are those who mourn this godly mourning, godly sorrow, for they shall be comforted, not those who have this worldly, self-centered, selfishly motivated sorrow. Now, the, the Bible gives some great contrasts. And so uh, instead of coming up with other stories and telling you, I want to take them right out of God's word. It's these contrasts of godly versus worldly that we see both in the lives of, of King Saul and King David, as well as in the lives of Judas and Peter. You see, in the Old Testament, when, when King Saul was, he was king over Israel, the prophet Samuel came to him one day and he says, God, listen, God wants you to go into this nation and wipe out the Amalekites. You're to wipe them out completely, to kill the men and the women, the children, the infants, the cats, the, not the cats, the cattle, the, the sheep, all the livestock. Wipe out everything entirely. Leave nothing alive. Well, it says that Saul took his army in and they attacked everybody, but they left King Agag alive and they, and they kept some of the choice animals, some of the, some of the finest, the ones that are that without blemish, they kept them for themselves. And they said they were going to come back and, and they were going to offer them as a sacrifice. In fact, it says that they were unwilling to destroy them completely, but they wanted to bring them back as a sacrifice to the Lord. Well, when Samuel confronts Saul, Saul made excuses. Saul said, I did obey God. I did what he said. He insisted. He shifted the blame. He claimed, well, well, wait a minute. This was the people's idea to save the livestock and to do that and just to do it as a sacrifice, not mine. This is when we hear Samuel's famous verse that many of us know when, when Samuel said back to Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. You see, Saul ultimately admitted his sin, but he asked Samuel to return with him and to honor him before the elders. You see, Saul was worried about saving face. He was, he was worried about, he wanted to avoid that, that public repro reproach. He wanted his reputation to remain intact. Saul was not concerned at all, really, about his sin being against God. And he wasn't concerned about his posture and his position before God. Now take the other example, then, of King David. And we know that his sins were, were grievous and of their own. David was guilty of, of adultery with a, with a married woman. And then, he, and then he murdered her husband to try to cover everything up. But at the moment that his crimes were revealed, David was undone. He was broken. Immediately he confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. Then he cried out. He fasted day and night, lying on the ground for a week straight, pleading for the life of his son asking God to forgive him for the wrongs that he had done. He was not concerned about himself or how he appeared. He didn't care what anyone else thought. He was really just concerned about how his actions had impacted the life of another, not of himself. So here in the end, we see the difference between that godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. One leads to life and the other one ultimately to death. Remember that despite David's many sins, God still called him a man after mine own heart. 
And, and David goes on, he writes in Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He also said, the sacrifices are God of a, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. There's no trace of selfishness. There's no trace of self-centeredness. David was broken. He was appealing to God for that mercy and grace and falling upon that only. That is what godly sorrow is. Now, in the New Testament, we have a similar example. You got Judas and you have Peter, one who betrayed Christ and one who denied Christ. We know that on the night that Jesus was condemned and, and Judas knew that, that Jesus was condemned, he goes back to these Pharisees. He gives them, he returns the, the 30 pieces of silver. It says he was filled with remorse. Remorse, not repentance. Remorse. He was, his regret was completely self-centered. He was sorrowful, but really not even for the plight of Jesus. He was really sorrowful for himself and the fact that he just betrayed innocent blood, but not repentant. Now you look at Peter. Peter, we know, who famously denied Jesus three times. And when that rooster crowed, and then all of a sudden it says that he went outside and he wept bitterly. It means he was in great agony. He was wailing with grief. Now was Peter's godly or worldly sorrow? I think in the end, it's really, you got to look at the, the evidence, the next steps to know the truth. Judas went out and hung himself. Still, still selfish, an act of selfishness. But Peter, what did Peter do? Well, immediately we see him back in community with his brothers. We see him back in the fellowship. And we know that, and then when news of the resurrection comes, it's Peter that sprints past John into the tomb, seeking his Savior. When he's out in a boat and it says, it's the Lord on the beach, it's Peter that jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore because he wants to be back in the presence of his Savior. Peter was broken too. But his brokenness led to that repentance. It led to salvation. It leads no regret. That's what it means when we say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So continuing in this passage of 2 Corinthians 7, assuming that we understand that as we approach God in forgiveness... As we, as we mourn over our sin and we're comforted by the Holy Spirit, is there a change in our lives? How do we see that? What's different? As I said, the key difference to all of these things is repentance. Repentance literally means it, it means understanding my sin and turning from it. It's a 180. Repentance can always be looked at as a from to type of action. That I'm leaving from this behavior, from this life, to something more, something different. And in 2 Corinthians 7.11, following the verse that we just read, Paul says this. He says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eager to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So what Paul is saying is that godly sorrow, which produces salvation, which leads to salvation, which, which, which leaves no regret, that that godly sorrow will produce something in our lives, that will be motivated and there will be evidence and there will be behaviors of different from our previous life, to something that is new. And there's seven things that he kind of outlines here. And I, and I just, because uh, I like the, you know, uh, having things, I have alliteration or whatever. I get seven F's, okay, of repentance. The first thing that Paul says is that godly sorrow will produce renewed faith. 
This is what earnestness is, or diligence. Paul is saying that when you recognize that you've been forgiven, you are going to now pursue righteousness with greater vigor. You're going to now seek to to know God deeper. You're going to be in his word. You're going to be in prayer. You're going to be in in community, in fellowship with others. It's going to produce earnestness. It produces faith, a newfound desire to, to know Christ and to make him known. We're not content to kind of to skirt around the image of sin any longer, but to, but to steer our lives according to his will and to begin to walk with him. The next thing is that godly sorrow produces eager forgiveness. This is the word when Paul says, what eagerness to clear yourselves. Godly sorrow recognizes that because God will meet me there, because he is faithful and just to forgive, I come to him, ask, I confess my sin to him. I ask for his love and his mercy and his grace. Godly sorrow produces that with an eagerness to seek forgiveness, to have the to have be cleared of wrongdoing, to come to God in confession, to seek that mercy and grace. It's that eagerness to, to be made clean, to start fresh. Sin by its nature wants to lurk in the dark. But because of this sorrow and understanding of who God is, all of a sudden now we want to expose that to the light. We are eager and quick to pursue forgiveness. Thirdly, godly sorrow will produce a righteous fury. Righteous fury. This is what, uh, this is what Paul calls indignation or vexation. We need to now look. Salvation by its nature, by its nature, must change our attitude towards sin. You see, God created the world and he called it good. But sin separates. Sin causes alienation and death. And so it's for, it's for sin that Jesus came into the world and died on the cross. And so God hates sin. We must hate sin. Too many times in our lives, to be honest with you, we love our sin. We play with our sin. We don't treat it with the severity that it deserves. Oftentimes we kind of treat it as maybe just something, a minor infraction or just a little problem But really, when we understand how much we have been forgiven and how much our God loves us, we will then look at sin with a certain fury and say, I don't want that anymore. I don't want that in my life. There's a certain anger, that certain fury. Fourthly, it says that godly sorrow will ultimately produce fear. That's this thing of alarm. You know, when Paul says alarm, it it more connotates what we all know to be the fear or the reverence of God is that when I understand the enormity of the sin that God has forgiven, and I also understand who God is as the creator of the heaven and the earth, that I will then approach him with more reverence and awe and respect. God is not some little genie floating up in a cloud or a little fairy that is, that is just this kind of you know, rinky-dink creator. No, God is powerful. He is magnificent. He is mighty. God is not safe. He's not tame. And so I think understanding the weight of our forgiveness puts us in a posture before God that says, God, I, I'm just amazed by your size and your reverence and your glory. And I don't want to fall into this same sin again. Fifthly, godly sorrow produces fellowship. Fellowship is the word that Paul talks about longing. So fellowship and longing, it's the desire to be back into the presence of God. Our sin, as I said, separates And when we understand that God has forgiven us, we want nothing more than to be back into his presence, than to be in fellowship, in community, in love with Christ, the one who died for us, the one who gave his life for us. As the branch, we seek that connection to the vine because apart from him, we can do nothing. 
And apart from him, life is meaningless. It's without purpose. So that sorrow that, that produces repentance and salvation, it leads us in a place of just wanting to be back in his presence, in his proximity. That's what fellowship is. Next, it says, godly sorrow produces a, a fire, produces fire in our life. This is what, when Paul talks about what concern. See, when we understand how much we have for, been forgiven, that should incite with us, in us a certain passion, a certain passion for the gospel, a certain passion for the message of the cross to go out and share that with other people. This concern is, is, is described, it's our zeal, it's our, it's our excitement of mind, it's this fervor of spirit. Honestly, it's what is often lacking in our lives, mine included. Oftentimes we see people that are, that are doing something bold and they're doing something radical for the cause of Christ and we're thinking like, man, they're a little bit fanatic. They're a little bit out there, you know? can't believe they just sold their house and moved to, you know, Africa or whatever it might be. You know, and we think that they maybe lost it. This happens all the times within our own ministry. We have young people that apply for our team because they want to spend a year on mission going out, sharing the gospel with teens and their peers all over the country, proclaiming a message of purity and sexuality. And the parents are the ones that put on the brakes and they say, well, we, maybe, maybe we got to look at career and college and all that kind of stuff first before being on mission for God. See, that godly sorrow should produce fire, passion, zeal, concern in our lives to, to share the gospel with others, to share the hope that we have so that other people can be invited into the family. We've got the message of truth, and oftentimes we hold it back. Godly, godly sorrow produces that fire. Finally, Paul says that, that godly sorrow produces ultimately fairness. This is when he talks about that readiness to see justice done. This is talk about righting the wrongs, avenging the things that have happened. Whatever wrongs were committed must be made right. Not just in forgiveness from our Father, but also in our earthly experience. So if our actions set the scale off balance, you've got to fix those things. Stolen items need to be returned. Harmful words forgiven. What has been broken must be mended. If you remember when, when Jesus uh, kind of approached uh, Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. They were notorious for, you know, kind of stealing and cheating. And, and, G, and Zacchaeus' first response, he goes, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay him back four times the amount. Immediately you see that desire to, to make the scales right, to, to set the rights wrong, or set the wrongs right, to fix what has been done. And that's part of all of those things of what it means to express that godly sorrow, that godly mourning over our sin. And ultimately, these things lead us to being innocent in the matter. That's what Paul says. He says, at every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Innocent not in the fact that it wasn't done, but innocent in the fact that by nature, by, na by objects of wrath, we've fallen upon grace. To know that it's only by Christ dying in our place that we may be made clean that we may be, may be made well. And so it's presuming upon that to know, hey, you're innocent now because I see the evidence, the fruit in your life that you've received this by grace. You've received this in Christ and you're desiring to repent, to turn from that and begin to walk in a new direction. Godly sorrow is different than worldly because it leads to total freedom from guilt, no regret and victory at the cross. So maybe as I kind of close up here tonight, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Happy are those who grieve their sin, who recognize and confess their sin, because in that moment, they are met with forgiveness. They're met with grace. They're met with that salvation. That we don't carry these regrets of the wrongs that have been done. We now just presume upon the cross. We fall at his feet. But maybe today you haven't experienced any of that blissfulness, that happiness. Maybe you haven't experienced that comfort and love in the Father and the presence of the Spirit by mourning your sin. Maybe because you felt like it's something that is so deep, so dark, so much that you can't even let it out. You're hoping you can even hide it from God. Let me tell you something. He knows there's nothing that you can keep hidden from him. And the only way you're going to find that happiness, the only way you're going to find that, that transcendent joy that, that, that goes beyond situations, that goes beyond circumstances, is to just cast that upon him, to cast that at the foot of the cross. God is a loving father who's waiting at the edge of the field, waiting for that prodigal son or daughter, you, to return home. He doesn't want to rebuke you. He wants to restore you. He doesn't want to chastise you. He wants to cleanse you. Indeed, that true happiness and joy is found when we, when we grieve that sin, when we offer it back to him, we leave it at the foot of the cross. Indeed, it's in that moment that our grace, that our great and merciful and loving God meets you there and gives you his comfort. Because blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are true and your words are true. God, as we receive these words this evening into our heart, Father, help that to be the experience of our life. That we may experience that deep joy and bliss and satisfaction in knowing you and in laying down all of our cares and all of our burdens and all of our brokenness at your feet. God, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us every time in that moment. Father, let each one of us know there is nothing that we could do. There is no, we couldn't have run far enough away. There is no sin we could commit, could commit, Father, that can outrun your loving arms and the arms of Christ that are stretched out on the cross. Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit that you would comfort every person in this room so that whatever grief, whatever sorrow, whatever despair, whatever sin that they have, God, they could just lay that down to you. They'd experience that deep joy and satisfaction in knowing and loving you. In Jesus' name, amen.